Welcome. So glad to see you guys this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open it up to Acts chapter 20, verses 13 through 30, well, we through 34. So farewell speeches, they're fairly common in our world. Whether it be a speech from a valedictorian or a CEO stepping down, a presidential address, or even a pastor moving on, when people leave, they want to leave an impression. They want to spur people on. They want to encourage people. They want to provide comfort, pass the torch, make sure that their legacy is going to endure. And this happens, and on July 4th, 1939, one such speech was given. Lou Gehrig had to retire from baseball. Up to this point, he had had the longest consecutive game streak of 2,130 games he had played consecutively. He was a great baseball player. He was a great teammate. And the reason for his departure is that he was diagnosed with what was called ALS, now known as Lou Gehrig's disease. If you Google some of the best farewell speeches in history, this is one's going to top the list. I got a little excerpt from it I want you to hear. He says this, he says, Fans, for the past two weeks you have been reading about the bad break that I got. Yet today I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of this earth. I have, played, I have been in ballparks for 17 years and have never received anything but kindness and encouragement from you fans. When the New York Giants, one of their rivals, a team that you would give your right arm to beat and vice versa sends you a gift, that's something. When everybody down to the groundskeepers and those boys in the white coats remember you with trophies, that's something. When you have a wonderful mother-in-law who takes your side in the squabbles with her own daughter, that's something. When you have a father and a mother who work all their lives so that you can have an education and build your body, it's a blessing. When you have a wife who has been a tower of strength and shown more courage to you than you, could, you dreamed existed, that's the finest I know. So I close in saying that I may have had a tough break, but I have an awful lot to live for. Now that's a great speech. You can hear from his heart that he has a heart for his family, for his teammates, and for his dream that's now laid to waste. Well, this morning, we're going to look at a great farewell speech as well from the Apostle Paul that he gives to the elders in Ephesus. Now, when you hear the word elder, I don't want you to think about an old guy with white hair, right, with a cane. This is a pastor or an overseer of the church. That's what it means when it talks about elders in the New Testament. So we call them pastors. They call them elders, overseers. You get the, you get the idea. So remember, Paul spent three years pouring his life into the church in Ephesus. He was training these men, teaching them and loving them to pass the torch to them so that they would oversee the church when he left. And this is the last time that he's going to see these men. So he wants to give them further instruction, further encouragement, and further guidance on how to lead the church. With another thing to interestingly note, this is the only time in the book of Acts we have a record of Paul speaking to Christians. This is the only speech that is given to to Christians. So, but we can extrapolate from what he's saying that this is a pattern that he gives to different churches that he would plant and then leave. This speech is given to the leaders, to the pastors, to the elders of the church, 
but it is definitely applicable for all people at all time in the church. This speech demonstrates what a pastor should look like as he follows God's leadership over God's church. I don't want you to check out, because even though this speech was for pastors, it's also for you. A pastor should be exemplary in these instructions. Absolutely. But every church member should be striving to attain what Paul is instructing to. Because each follower of Jesus is called to be a minister for the gospel of Christ. In fact, this is what Paul, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1-12, through 12, but what a pastor is supposed to do. He says this, He is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So a pastor's job is to train his people, the people that God has given them to, to do the work of the ministry. My job is not to solely feed you, but to teach you to to fish. It's not to hand you everything over on a silver platter, but to train you on how to do the work, to encourage you and to spur you on in the ministry. That's what my job as a pastor is. That's what every pastor is called to do. So this farewell speech, what it does is it addresses and paints a picture of how a pastor is supposed to look, how a pastor is supposed to act, and how a pastor is supposed to lead the people of God. And if a pastor doesn't do these things, or he doesn't fit, fit this description, then he should repent, and he should be corrected. I want you to know that as I looked at this passage, as I studied this passage, I was deeply challenged, I was deeply encouraged, and I was deeply convicted about my job as a pastor. And I hope that as we study it, you're going to be challenged, convicted, and encouraged through here as well. But before Paul was able to talk to these pastors in Ephesus, Luke has to give us kind of a travel plan of what's happening. So in verses 13 through 16 in Acts chapter 20, this is what he says. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day, opposite Chios. The next day we touched Samos. And the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul decided to set to sail past Ephesus so that we might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So Luke lays out some travel plans for us. And in these travel plans we get a glimpse of what Paul's goal is. And his goal is to go to Jerusalem. He, want, he sailed right past Ephesus. He could have stopped there and talked to him, but he sailed right past it. Why didn't he go to the church in Ephesus? Most likely because it was going to slow down his trip. There's a lot of people there that loved him. So his presence there was going to cause maybe another uproar, another riot like we saw a couple of chapters ago. Maybe he felt like the goodbyes to everybody was going to take too long. Have you ever been in that situation when you're trying to tell somebody goodbye and it takes long, longer to tell them goodbye than the time that you spent with them? Right? That's probably what he was expecting, but he has a goal in mind. Paul is in a hurry because he wants to get to Jerusalem. Remember, he still had that donation, so he had a lot of money with him that he was taken from the Gentile churches to the Jerusalem church. And he wanted to get there before Pentecost. 
And he wanted to do that, and in order to do that, he had to move quickly. Nothing could slow him down. So he presses on and he arrives at Miletus, and there he calls the elders of Ephesus to come and visit with him to instruct them of what they should be doing. And we're going to divide this speech down into three parts. Part one is going to be instruction by Paul's example. Part two is going to be an instruction to be on guard. And part three is going to be an instruction to lead by example. Before we get there, let's go ahead and pray real quick. Father God, thank you for this time to preach your word. Thank you, Lord, that we get to come into your presence. That we get to honor and glorify you through your word being declared. Lord, and I pray that you would illuminate the scriptures, that you would touch our hearts that you would touch our souls, Lord, that you would uh, uh, engage our brains so that we could focus on who you are and what it is you have to say to us through this text. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 20, verse 17 through 21. This is what it says. It says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks the repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing Paul's going to do is he's going to appeal to his example. So he's going to instruct them by his example. This is that old adage that actions speak louder than words. Paul was leading by example. He wasn't leaning on, you know, do as I say, not as I do. He was being a good leader. Watch me as I imitate Christ and imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's what Paul's saying. Paul tells the pastors in Ephesus to remember how he was when he was with them. His life was an example for followers of Jesus to follow after, to teach like him to help people grow in the likeness of Jesus like he did. So how did Paul lead by example? First, he served the Lord in humility. Humility is the mark of someone wanting to be like Jesus. Just think about it. Jesus was humble, right? In Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, this is what, what Paul writes. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, though He was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus served humbly. Jesus died humbly. Jesus forgives us humbly. To be humble is to be like Jesus. And humility is essential for the Christian life. The pastor and the leaders of the church should be the most humble, leading by example. And often in our culture, when people think about humility, they think that of people who are doormats, people that just let things passively happen. But the only way that we can lead well is to lead by humility. People equate humility with weakness, and being humble is not weak. Being humble is hard. 
Humility has a negative connotation to many people. Humility doesn't mean that you let everyone walk all over you. It means that you don't see yourself as any better than anyone else. It means that you are willing to serve regardless of your stature, regardless of your position, regardless of your power or your influence, that you're willing to serve. But humility isn't limited to just leadership. All Christians should humbly serve Jesus, His church, and other people. We also see that Paul endured his trials with grace. Trials will come and go. Difficulties will happen. They will happen because of our own rebelliousness and our own sinfulness. They will happen because we live in a broken world. They will happen because of other people. Remember Paul saying that the Jews oppressed him. And sometimes they will happen because God is trying to teach us something. Paul endured many hardships at the hands of the Jewish people because they rejected the message of Jesus. Paul was imprisoned. He was beaten. He had death threats. They were chasing him out of town. But regardless of what was happening, he continued to serve the Lord. He continued to endure. He was faithful when it would have been easy to give up. Yet he kept pressing on. He trusted God. And as he endured these trials, we read that he declared the word of God to anyone who would listen. He did it in large groups, from a pulpit. He did it in small groups, in homes. He proclaimed it and he taught it. Public places and in houses. He proclaimed and taught the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel was always central to what Paul was proclaiming. He was proclaiming their need for a Savior, the need for repentance. We read in verse 25 through 27, we read this, And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring the whole gospel, the whole counsel of God. So he taught the whole counsel of God. Paul was committed to preaching every word of God's word. Because his faithfulness to the word, he was innocent of the blood of all. So this gives us the idea of a a callback to Ezekiel chapter 33. In Ezekiel chapter 33, what they were talking about was there were men who would walk the walls of Jerusalem. And these were called the watchmen. And what they would do is that as they walked the walls of Jerusalem, if they saw an enemy coming, they would announce it. But it was the people inside the walls' responsibility to respond to the announcement. So if somebody was inside the walls and they didn't respond to the announcement, then the watchman's innocent of all the blood because he proclaimed the enemy was coming. And when he proclaimed that the enemy was coming, it's your responsibility to respond. And it's the same thing here. Paul's saying, like, I proclaimed the whole counsel of God. I told you that you needed to repent. I told you that you needed to love Jesus. Now I'm innocent of all blood because I have proclaimed to you like the watchman on the wall. But now if Paul wasn't proclaiming, then he wasn't innocent of any blood that was shed. He wasn't innocent because he wasn't doing his job. And the same thing happened with the watchman. If they didn't tell about the enemy that was coming, then they were at fault for any blood shed. So that's, that's what, what he's trying to get at right here. This is what Paul was getting at. He proclaimed the repentance. He proclaimed the word of God. He proclaimed it to both Jews and Greeks. 
And if someone ignored it, it wasn't his fault. It's theirs. It would be easy in today's world to preach from God's word anything that I wanted to preach. I can cherry pick anything out of the Bible and apply it to your lives. I could do that. Many preachers do. These preachers that preach these false things, they're the ones who are driving around in Maseratis and Lamborghinis and they have private jets, millions of dollars in their bank account. But unfortunately, they are losing their souls for greed. They're losing their souls because they're chasing after the, the, the almighty dollar. They're not true to the word of God. They shy away from the whole counsel of God. They shy away from calling sin, sin. They shy away from telling people that they need to repent and believe in Jesus for salvation. Now on the other side, we've got pastors today who, who tend to get on hobby horses where they, they continue to preach the same thing day after day, week after week. And this is one of the reasons that I'm convicted and convinced that preaching through books of the Bible is the best way for me to teach you the whole counsel of God. And when we are, I'm teaching through a book of the Bible, we can't just skip over the hard things. We can't just skip over the things that are going to make us uncomfortable. That being said, now from time to time we will have these these topical series, that, but they'll always be centered on the gospel. And I'm not going to try to take a verse and try to make it fit what I want you to hear. I want to speak what God has spoken to you because he's already spoken. And for me to change his words is for me to blaspheme against what he has already spoken. He has tasked me and other pastors with training you to understand what he has said. And that's what I'm committed to doing. I know I'm not perfect. So if you ever feel or notice that I get on a hobby horse or I'm misinterpreting something, I want you to talk to me about it. We'll have a conversation about it. Let me know. Because I want to be faithful to the Word of God for you and for God Himself. Now at the same time, don't get mad at me for what God has said. If you have a problem with what God has said, you need to talk to Him about it. Okay, Because it's not me who's saying it, it's God's who's saying it. Preaching the whole counsel of God means that we are going to encounter things that we don't like to hear. We are going to th see things that are hard for our modern minds to wrap around. They're going to be offensive. They're probably going to hurt some feelings. But God's word is perfect. It's holy. And it shows us how to live life as he has des designed it. At the same time, we know we live in a broken world. We know that we are sinful creatures and we are going to violate his word. But there is grace to be found at the foot of the cross. So if we have a problem with God's word, we have to think about this. Who's right and who's wrong? Who's right and who's wrong? God calls for us to be all of his when, he follow, when we follow him. And Paul gives the Ephesian elders an example of this type of submission and obedience when he tells them in verses 22 and 23, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Paul is 
led by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Paul's life isn't going to get any easier following Jesus. He's going down the road of suffering and imprisonment. It isn't just that he wants to be in Jerusalem, it's that he is compelled by the Spirit to get there. And sometimes God is going to compel us to go somewhere that it's going to be difficult to get to, that it's going to be hard to go through it. And as the Holy Spirit drives us, we have to recognize that what he's doing is for our good and for his glory. Imprisonment and afflictions wait wait for Paul, yet he is still obedient. And why is he still obedient? It tells us in verse 24. It tells us that, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if I only may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I want us to see something that I think we should all embrace. Our life is not our own. He doesn't ask for parts of our lives when we come to him. He demands all of it, whether it be work, home, school, family, friends, desires. He wants all of us. And if we are followers of Jesus, we give our lives to him. We are to be used by him. We are to be led by him. We are to be sustained by him. Why? So that we can testify to others about his grace, that we tell others about the good news of the gospel. That is why God has called us to himself. Not so we can just sit here in isolation, but so that we can proclaim in submission the goodness of God. Christianity isn't about just getting out of hell or living a prosperous life or having all of our troubles swept away. Christianity is about a relationship with the holy, awesome, magnificent creator of the universe of the universe. You will have trouble in this life. You will have difficulty when you follow Jesus. You will be faced with decisions that you don't want to make. What does Jesus tell us to do? Deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. And as we do that, I want you to remember something. That God is already taking care of our biggest problem, of our biggest obstacle. And that is sin and death. He offers us life because of his sacrifice. He has given us truth in his word. And the best thing about following Jesus is that not about the stuff we get, but we get God. We get to be in relationship with God. We get to be called his children. We get to tell others that they can have this too, that they can have this as well. We get God. We can stand in His presence. We can come to His throne boldly because we are His children. That's what we get when we follow Jesus. It's not about earthly treasures. It's about Jesus Himself. We can tell from Paul's life that it was never easy. Sometimes the things that God has called us to do is are hard. This is not the easy path. This is the narrow path that is difficult But the hardships that we face are meant to shape us and mold us and make us more into the image of God. Hardships are meant to hone off our rough edges, sand us down, and make us rely more on God. 
so that we can be witnesses again and proclaim his grace and goodness to others. So if someone told you that following Jesus you wouldn't have any issues, you wouldn't have any difficulties, you wouldn't have any problems, they flat out lied to you. They lied to you. But here's what we know. That when we follow Jesus and these hardships occur, there is a reason for them. Jesus never wastes an ounce of our suffering. In fact, in Romans 8.28, we can read this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for His good, or for, the, for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. God uses and He redeems our suffering for His purposes. He, wanted, he wants us to know that, that He loves us so much that He came and He suffered just like we suffered. He lived the perfect life and he was nailed to a cross to show us that he can sympathize with our suffering and that it's not wasted. Following Jesus is not always going to be sunshine and rainbows. Oftentimes it's going to be in the muck and in the mire we see him for who he truly is. We see the glory that radiates off of him and we can understand and appreciate what he has done. Paul sees, and he knows that, per- that suffering is coming, but he knows there's a purpose for it. So he desires that he would finish the race faithful to Jesus. That's my hope for me. That's my hope for you is that you finish the race, that you stay faithful when life gets difficult. God's got a plan, and that plan is to make you look more like Jesus so that you can proclaim Jesus to dying world. But as we follow Jesus, we need to be on guard against false teachings and false teachers because there are those who will come and they will proclaim a different Christ. They will teach a false gospel and they will try to lead you away. In verses 28 through 31 we read this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert. Remember that in for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul wants us to be on guard. Paul warns the pastors that there are going to be wolves who come in into the congregation and they are going to try to teach against the truths of God. But what is the first thing he tells them? He says, worry about yourself. Pay attention to yourself. And why would he say that? Because a pastor that doesn't take care of himself won't be able to take care of the congregation. But he also tells the pastor to pay attention to the flock. This reflects back to the imagery in the Old Testament, of a, past, of, a, of a shepherd over a flock of sheep. Pastors are supposed to protect God's people. God has entrusted pastors to care for his people. There are always going to be people who want to come and lead you astray. And sometimes they enter into the church and they cause division. Or sometimes they enter into the church and they start teaching false doctrines. Or sometimes they enter into the congregation through the things we consume outside of the church, whether it be media, friendships, relationships. 
But I heard it once said this way by one pastor. He says, a pastor or a good shepherd smells like his sheep. A good shepherd smells like his sheep. And what this means is that a good pastor lives in the lives of his people, that he has relationships with his people. He is in regular communication with them. They trust him, and he trusts them. And he sees when things are going wrong, and he helps to correct them. Now, some people take this overboard. Some pastors take this overboard, and they basically use their position as a power play where they they try to play the Holy Spirit in the lives of their congregation. They start shaming people publicly. They start admonishing them harshly. Or they start separating them. But here's the thing. That's not loving. And a shepherd loves his sheep. A shepherd loves his sheep. And likewise, pastors are to love their congregation. Pastors should be compassionate and loving not bullies. I don't know if you've ever thought about shepherds. I didn't think a lot about shepherds until recently, but I used to think that they were pretty docile, that they were just lying in the fields, watching their sheep, right? Making sure that they were eating the grass that they needed to eat. But you know when you have free-range sheep, right? They're not in a pen. That shepherds aren't docile and weak people. That David was a shepherd. And we get an example of what a good shepherd is when we look at David. What did he have to do? He had to fight off lions and bears. That's not weak, right? That's a warrior. Shepherds carried a rod and a staff. They also had a slingshot. There weren't guns back then. They had a slingshot to protect their sheep, right? So the rod was like a policeman's club. It was made of oak, and it generally had like nails driven into the edge of it. So they could beat away evil things that would come to try to take their sheep. They would use a staff to help guide their sheep. And then if they saw a lion or something, they had a slingshot and they would throw it at there. Remember, a slingshot is what killed Goliath. Shepherds are warriors for their sheep. Likewise, pastors are called to fight for their people. Pastors are called to stand guard and make sure that at every level, truth is being taught. We are called by God, to protect his people. The Holy Spirit leads us to love and to serve and protect God's people. And I am humbled every time I think about the fact that God has placed me here with you, that he has entrusted me to help lead, teach, and protect you. It's a pretty weighty matter. But I know that it's no accident. God designed it this way. That being said, you don't belong to me. This isn't Josh's church. This is God's church. We all are the people of God under his leadership and under his guidance. You belong to him. He is the one that has purchased you. He is the one who has sought you out. And he has placed me here so that I can serve you while I serve him. But not only are pastors supposed to be warriors against enemies, pastors should be compassionate and empathetic towards the people of God. Pastors should weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And several times in this passage, we see Paul say that he did these things with tears. He cared for the people deeply. Not in a superficial, but like a truly, madly, deeply love for these people. He loved them because he saw that they were loved by God, that they were purchased by Jesus Christ. 
And that's why he loved them. And the more that we love God, the more that we will love one another. We are called to do so because we were bought with love. Jesus, his blood was shed for us. You and I are God's children. So like he fought for us, pastors are supposed to fight for you too. And we should fight for one another. We should not fight with one another or against one another. We should fight for one another. The message for the Ephesian elders is important for us today because it doesn't take long for people to be led astray. It doesn't take a whole lot to lead people astray. Paul knew that they were going to be infected with false teachers in the church of Ephesus. So he wanted to prepare the pastors. He wanted them to look out and be mindful. Paul even writes a letter to the Ephesians. Then he sends Timothy, his little prodigy, over to pastor in Ephesus. And he writes him two letters about addressing false doctrine. But then we also read about the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation, verses 2, 1 through 7, and it says this. This is Jesus speaking. And he says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and I and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But I have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and I have found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and that you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works as you, you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet, I ha- yet, you, yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has a ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in God's paradise. This is why we need to watch out, because we don't want to be the ones who lost our first love, who abandoned the one who loved us. We want to faithfully endure. Paul closes this speech by telling the pastors that they need to lead by example. Verses 32 through 35, it says this, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. How he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul says, now you need to lead by example. The first way that Paul tells these pastors to lead by example is to stay devoted to the word of God. More specifically, the word of his grace. God's word builds up God's people. It's important for people to know and be in love with God's word so that they can know who God is. We can only give what we have received. So pastors and leaders are to be filled with God's word so that they can give it to others. From God's grace through his word, we are able to be transformed. The grace of God is not just for the time when we first give our life to Jesus, but it's for daily that we receive 
His grace. God's grace is a part of our inheritance as followers of Jesus, something that we lean on to and we rely on daily, regardless of how often we stumble, how often we fall, how often we rebel, how often we stand opposed to God. Grace is still extended to us if we are his children because we are living a life on earth and we are still being sanctified. We aren't perfect yet till the day we're in glory with him. Listen to what one one commentator said about this passage. This is the God-given word by which the church grows in size and maturity and is protected from error and division. It is a message which God uses to convert and to sustain believers until they reach the inheritance which the gospel itself promises. When the gospel is faithfully preached and applied to believers, they are assured of their standing with God in Christ and are encouraged to press on in love, unity, and obedience. And that's why pastors preach the word of God to sustain, empower, and lead a congregation to maturity. Yet there are some pastors who seek after financial gain. And that's why Paul says in verses 33 and 35, I coveted no one's silver or gold. Pastors are to stay away from greed. There would be, in this time, professional orators who would come around and they would speak, and people would pay them to speak. But Paul was like, no, that's not what I came. I came to proclaim the message, not to get paid. Now, it's not wrong for a pastor to be compensated for his work. He should work hard in his calling, and it is right to compensate them. But when pastors let greed lead them, when they let the adoration of people guide them, when they let the praise of men satisfy them, that's when it's wrong. But a pastor who loves his congregation, a pastor who seeks the good of God's people, will not seek after a fattened wallet. Pastors shouldn't be chasing after a paycheck. We should be chasing after Jesus. And as we're chasing after Jesus, having you come alongside us as we follow him. None of God's people should be compelled by greed. That's why God's people combat greed by showing generosity. Generosity is helping the weak, the poor, and the downtrodden. Generosity towards the church, recognizing that what we have is not our own, but we are simply stewards of God's great gift. That's why Paul quotes Jesus here, and it says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. But interestingly enough, the side note, this verse is found nowhere in the Gospels. This is just a saying that Jesus said that people had taken and had heard. That Remember, John tells us that if everything that Jesus had said and done was written down, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to compose them. But Paul obviously heard somebody, Peter, John, James, somebody say this, it's more blessed to give than receive, and that comes from the lips of Jesus. Regardless of how they heard it from Jesus, the truth is there. Giving is always better than receiving, especially when we recognize how much we have been given, how much we have been blessed. The fact that we have hope, we have grace, we have mercy from an almighty God. So let me ask you, how are you doing? Are you showing people that they matter to God? Are you telling them about the amazing love of God? Are you proclaiming the truth of God? Are you being generous towards people? Also, as a member here, 
if you're a member, I wanted to ask you, how do you think I'm doing? Am I living up to this standard? If you don't think you think I am, let's have a conversation. I'm humble enough to listen to you. I'm the most humble, in fact. Anyway, <laughs> I just have a different calling, okay? Our relationship is important to me, okay? I want to be faithful to both God and to you. Don't be intimidated by my title. Come and talk to me. I'm open to listen to you. Remember, I'm here to serve you, love you, and teach you as I serve God, love God, and learn from Him. I want you to be honest with me. Now today is the first Sunday of the month. And normally on the first Sunday of the month, what do we do? We have the Lord's Supper. And we're going to have the Lord's Supper, but we're going to do it a little bit different today. Okay? So we're going to sing a couple songs, and then I'll give you further instructions after we're finished.